nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. I uh, want to read to you today parts of an essay I wrote about James Baldwin. Ever since Toni Morrison died, I, uh, I've i been preoccupied with the, I was called the African-American heritage. Uh, these are just American writers, of course. Toni Morrison is a literary saint. And uh, I think if Mark Twain is the 19th century, then Toni Morrison, for me, is the uh, 20th century. She and James Baldwin. Uh, it's, it's, this is just so difficult, so difficult to put people um, in a pyramid. I can't stand it. Uh, one at a time, one at a time. My literary saint, Toni Morrison, is gone now, and I keep rifling through her works looking for something that, uh, something that is special. I think the book Sula, that perfect little novel I used to teach that in high school, and I think she wrote it because she wanted to prove she could write a perfect novel. So many of the things she wrote were uh, prose poems, and uh, sometimes the critics notice that. So Sula is a grounded, wonderful little novel about a woman's individuation. We use that word a lot. Uh, basically about two women, one an at-home woman and the other a <laughs> get-out-there-and-live woman, yes. Sula and Nell, and of course, uh, their great love is, of course, for each other. But I recommend Sula if that's... You know, the only book... Well, if the only thing you're going to read uh, is one book, I would recommend The Song of Solomon because it's... Uh, oh, it's big and narrative and... Anyway, Song of Solomon and Sula. I uh, I like to go back to Sula when I need to remember what uh, what young women need to read, how they need to read about... Uh, is it uh, the ways in which African-American women have been stifled, stifled. Uh, I put Toni Morrison on the shelf next to my beloved James Baldwin. I, I, I'm not sure why James Baldwin and Toni Morrison uh, uh, are so close to me. Uh, nothing to do with being African-American. It has to do, I think, with the quality of of love it's a matter of the the heart uh literature is about love the history of love 
And, uh, oh, these two great lovers, I want to read you bits and pieces about, about, uh, mostly about James Baldwin. Uh, Stanley Crouch, one of our, one of our critics, wonderful music critic, uh, he, he is upset about Afro-American, uh, fiction because he thinks it's, well, let's say, uh, Maybe it's it's a it's a weepers, right? Stanley Crouch writes, uh, much of the Afro-American fiction written over the last twenty-five years derives from a vision set down by James Baldwin, who described the downtrodden as saintly. <laughs> now, he wrote this many years ago, uh, so it's been fifty years, right? Fifty years that. Uh, the downtrodden have been saintly. Uh, Stanley Crouch goes on in the New Republic. Uh, he states that as a result of James Baldwin's writing, race has become an industry. That article is titled Aunt Medea. It's a frontal attack on Toni Morrison's novel, uh, Beloved. <laughs> I got it. I got it framed. There's a wonderful picture of Toni Morrison as a uh, uh, wicca, uh, wild woman. Uh, he uh, has a problem with black women writers in general. Uh, <laughs> uh, again, Virginia Woolf, she's always telling us how the, the professors, the critics, the male critics, uh, will find women wanting... Uh, Crouch's attacks on Alice Walker are the most petulant, but uh, his article on Toni Morrison is a veritable temper tantrum. He stamps his feet like some cranky little rumple still skin. I call him Stanley Grouch. A woman has spun gold from straw, and he's jealous. Here's what he writes about, beloved. He says it's designed to placate sentimental feminist ideology and to make sure that the vision of black women as the most scorned and rebuked of the victims does not weaken. Beloved above all else is a black-faced Holocaust novel. It seems to have been written in order to enter American slavery into the big-time martyr ratings contest. <laughs> ah, that's what Stanley... Crouch, Stanley Couch, wrote. Well, there are those of us who believe that chattel slavery on this continent might just be the winner of the big-time martyr contest, if that's what we're calling it this season. Ah, for a definitive uh, study of the Atlantic slave trade, see Black Cargoes. Uh, back in 1962, Viking published Black Cargoes by... Daniel Pratt Mannix. Incredible book. Uh, don't don't read it uh, if you are uh, if your nervous system is weak. Uh, Sandy Crouch goes on to say that Tony Morrison lacks a true sense of the tragic. She perpetually interrupts her narrative with maudlin ideological. Commercials, end quote. <laughs> I, uh, 
I, I assure you this was written long before Toni Morrison won her Nobel Prize uh, for literature. I mean, to pick that up in Stockholm back in 1993. Uh, I hope that Stanley Crouch was happy to eat his words. <laughs> yes. Uh, lacks a true sense of the tragic. It's the damnedest thing. Uh, he seems to think that the the uh, the agonies, the tragedy of slavery was mostly uh, a, a male a male story, not uh, about women. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't help thinking about the ideological commercials in Richard Wright's novel of social realism back in 1940. You remember a book called Native Son, <laughs> loaded, loaded with ideological commercials. Commer- commercials. I'm afraid that critics such as Stanley Crouch are simply unhappy men descended, yes, from Virginia Woolf's hypothetical figure of Professor Vaughn X, guy in her essay, A Room of One's Own, who was engaged in writing his monumental work entitled The Mental, Moral, and Physical Inferiority of the Female Sex. Virginia Woolf opines that such angry misogynists were perhaps laughed at in their cradles by a pretty girl. Whatever the reason, their reactions are subjective. They do not wish to have their existence, their suffering, described, defined, or rendered into poetry by a woman. They wish to keep their pain to themselves. Now, James Baldwin did not keep his pain to himself. He was capable of that intimacy which women are said to crave. He shared his feelings. Got that? (laughs) He poured forth his deepest convictions, and they became literature. James Baldwin did not deny his pain, nor did he detest women. Some say this is because he was a homosexual, and perhaps that is so. But just the same, he did not detest women. What is more, he did not detest black people. Nor did he detest himself in the end. He says that he did so in the beginning when he was a child. It's called internalized oppression. He believed some of what the white world said about him, but then he thought about it. (laughs) Baldwin once said he had to live in Paris for nine years in order to be convinced someone could hate him for himself, not for his color. Baldwin was a kind of literary saint, Uh, like Toni Morrison. One of the sources of his sainthood was the uh, downtrodden condition in which he lived as a child in Barlam. Now, we all know that suffering does not necessarily ennoble people. Yes. Uh, Crouch has pointed that out. Uh, Richard Wright illustrated that in Native Son, a story in which racism turns a man into a brute, just as perhaps it has desensitized Stanley Crouch. 
In fact, Crouch may be a grouch for neo-racist reasons. Crouch quotes Baldwin. Uh, hmm. Baldwin wrote, I do not mean to be sentimental about suffering. Enough is certainly as good as a feast. But people who cannot suffer can never grow up. Can never discover who they are. That man who is forced each day to snatch his manhood, his identity, out of the fire of human cruelty that rages to destroy it, knows if he survives his effort, and even if he does not survive it, knows something about himself and human life that no school on earth, and indeed no church, can teach. He achieves his own authority, and that is unshakable. This is because in order to save his life, he is forced to look beneath appearances, to take nothing for granted, to hear the meaning behind the words. If one is continually surviving the worst that life can bring, one eventually ceases to be controlled by a fear of what life can bring. Whatever it brings must be born, and at this level of experience, one's bitterness begins to be palatable. Hatred becomes too heavy a sack to carry. And so Baldwin threw down the sack. You remember Malcolm X writing that a similar thing happened to him after he had visited Mecca. Baldwin embraced the world and what love there is in it. He never denied the hatred. He studied it. He wrote about it. But he was essentially a religious, a man whose presence gave off light, what Zen prophets call the light of infinite compassion. I will repeat, yes. Essentially, a religious. A man whose presence gave off light, what Zen prophets call the light of infinite compassion. The week that Baldwin died, I was surprised to find myself suffering from an acute sense of loss. I'm sure it was in part selfish. I mean that it was a sense of personal loss for a time gone by, for an era as well as a man. In the 1960s, we called him Jimmy, we being, I suppose, a rather naive handful of black and white liberals who believed that everything was going to work out after the revolution. I suppose we thought we would all become tea-colored, at least psychologically. James Baldwin was responsible, certainly more than any other writer in the 60s, for my own awakening, consciousness-raising, if you like. When I heard about Baldwin's death, I was sitting in the Café Mediterranean in Berkeley. 
There was live music coming from the print mint across the street. I had an acute attack of deja vu. Twenty years slipped away. I was back in 1967. Oh, we were so sure of ourselves then. I saw myself full of hope. We lived on hope back then. Hope was the rope we hung ourselves from. <laughs> I thought of my years as a suburban housewife from 1960 until 1966. My exile into marriage out in Lafayette, not far from Berkeley, and miles, but ideologically on another planet. Baldwin entered that world. He came into my consciousness. I can even say he had something to do with my divorce in 1966. <laughs> the other man is... Actually, I did not know James Baldwin personally. I, I wish I had. Baldwin left America in 1948 and commuted back from France sometimes to be with Martin Luther King. Baldwin was at the intellectual center of a monumental movement which changed American consciousness forever. It gave us the radical awareness that led to both the civil rights movement and the women's movement. I'll never forget his first appearance on television, his vivacity, his electric intelligence, his passionate Christianity. Some whites looked on in shock. Some even said he looked like a monkey. <laughs> Footnote here. We've discovered that Ronnie Reagan used the word monkey <laughs> in conjunction with black people. Mm -hmm. uh, no news there. Baldwin's great eyes and gnomic poetics were like nothing I had ever seen before. <laughs> people were startled. Baldwin himself once said that his father had told him he was the ugliest child, the ugliest N-word, pardon me, ugliest N-word he'd ever seen. Baldwin thought about that and came to the conclusion that nobody knows what a writer looks like, so he decided he would be a writer. A lot of us know that feeling, the feeling that we will not be loved for ourselves, so we must express our love at one remove. Between the pages of a book, behind a microphone. The soul of James Baldwin was easy to see even on TV. The diverse reactions to him when he appeared on mass media were exactly what I needed to separate the wise observers from those mired in fear and prejudice those Americans who, as Baldwin himself wrote, fear blacks because they fear death itself, because they are afraid of dark places, afraid of their own shadows, in fact. 
Baldwin blew our minds when he wrote that racism has something to do with our fear of death. Today, we know that applies to sexism as well. Deep down in our reptilian brainstem, there is an antipathy to that which is different from ourselves. The black, the Jew, the woman, anyone who is alien, who is other. Otherism, that's the name, that's the name of the pain. In a psychotic individual, uh, this paranoid ideation is acted out. That's when we get uh, Hitler. The poetic view is that this rejected other is very often a lost part of ourselves, a lost part of our own souls. When I first read the work of James Baldwin, I felt an instant recognition. Uh, there, I found a piece of my own soul that I'd been looking for. Oh, I knew that, like Richard Wright before him, some of his work was didactic, uh, sort of like Tolstoy's. He wrote about suffering, and in particular about humiliation, the humiliations inherent in the human condition are perhaps the most serious subject for any novelist. He was a moralist in the true sense of the word. Morality, yes, is the desire of someone who wishes to lessen suffering in the world. Desire to lessen suffering, yes. That is morality. Baldwin began in the church he preached in a Harlem storefront during his teens. He was into redemption early on. He also has observed that the church was safer than the streets, that the streets would have made him a junkie or pimp. I remember when, at just the same age, I found home, a home, a sanctuary, in the theater. Uh, I realized what was expected of nice white girls in the 1940s and 50s. Baldwin's theater was a pulpit, and he stayed in it for several years. Now, preaching and acting are both skills which shape writers. Of course, disillusion sets in when there's time to think. Baldwin's autobiographical novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, examines his early life in Harlem. It's the only one of his novels which has... Uh, come to the screen in a, what is it, in a curious, curious production. Uh, it is a faithful production. Alfre Woodard has a smoldering role as an early lover of Baldwin's father. There is also a hilarious scene of James Baldwin as an adolescent, well, <laughs> imagine Baldwin, as an adolescent boy sitting in a movie theater 
watching Betty Davis shrieking at Leslie Howard in the film of Human Bondage. Think about that one. Think about that one. Uh, at the heart of that novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, is Baldwin's profound love-hate, love-slash-hate relationship with his father. Actually, it was his stepfather, but uh, who can doubt that it is the ones who raise us who imprint our psyches. Baldwin wrote that his father hated the white man and was powerless against him. So he went into the church to ask God to kill the white man. His father's rage is what killed him, Baldwin thought. Baldwin's aching love for his father, his overwhelming sadness over his father's wasted life, those things are what remain in the reader's mind. Uh, some of this material was successfully televised in the 1960s, not in the film, which was not made until 30 years after Baldwin wrote the book, but in a documentary which juxtaposed the childhoods of James Baldwin and Hubert Humphrey. <laughs> Imagine that, yes, Humphrey. Midwest, mashed potatoes, that kind of thing. <laughs> Baldwin's, Harlem. Uh-huh. There you go, two American boyhoods. Anyway, it was one of the first times I saw a television production succeed in combining sociology with poetry. There were still photos of Hubert Humphrey as a soda jerk. Uh, children looking out the windows of Harlem tenements. Yes, still, still pictures. That's the backdrop for the contrasting lives of these two boys, a Midwestern white boy. His life is all affirmation. The urban black boy whose humiliation at the hands of a white policeman when he's about ten leave scars that never heal. Ah, Baldwin once said his birthright was to live in the world as a man, but his inheritance in America was to be a despised N-word again. Ah, ha. Humphrey's confidence in himself comes not from being a rich kid, his father was a pharmacist, but from being a loved kid. Baldwin's concluding lines at the end of this astonishing docudrama as he stands over his father's grave. The final lines speak of a father who never knew who he was, never knew what hit him. Yes. Footnote here, study history, learn your place in time. There are some characters in Dickens who knew uh, that history was happening to them. Never mind, my mind wanders. It's so sad to think of 
the human beings who uh, internalized their oppression, who believed the image of themselves uh, that the world presented. Uh. Anyway, Baldwin believed that his father's life was not only empty but unresolved and full of hate. And the only way to prepare for death, he thought, was to live fully, to make the journey into darkness, into the netherworld. This essay goes on to talk about the writer's journey, the trip that James Baldwin took. Come back and tell us what it was all about. <laughs> this has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back next time. Until then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Drop the shadows out of sight. The 2019 local station board elections are underway. Visit elections.pacifica.org for candidates' written statements, video cards, and debates. As of August 15th, your ballot will come in one of three forms. An email ballot with 2019 Pacifica elections in the subject line from vote at simplyvoting.com, a brightly colored postcard from Pacifica with your voter ID and password under a scratch-off, or, if you requested it, a paper ballot letter from Honest Ballot. If you cannot find your ballot, please fill out a ballot request form on election elections.pacifica.org. Members in need of a paper ballot can leave a voicemail at 510-854-9663. Paper ballot replacements will be issued through October 7th. All ballots must be received by October 15th, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to be counted. It's 94.1 KPFA, 94.1